So today I'm excited to talk to Allison Zingolowski and Brendan Schutz. Allison is a fifth-year doctoral candidate in educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, concentrating in human development, culture, and learning sciences. Though she earned her master's degree in quantitative methods, her research is primarily qualitative. She integrates cognitive, motivational, and socio-emotional perspectives to investigate student learning, delving into questions of how autonomy and belonging play a role in the ways students talk in synchronous online discussions, and considering what are learners' experiences of confusion in in-person and online environments. She also has a passion for teaching, often conducting research in her own courses to help improve her pedagogy. She graduated from Colgate University in 2017 with a degree in psychology and peace and conflict studies. Brendan Schutz is a fourth-year doctoral student at the University of Texas at Austin in the Human Development, Culture, and Learning Sciences program within the Educational Psychology Department. His research draws on cognitive and educational psychology to develop techniques to improve learning, with a particular focus on academic settings. Recent work has focused on retrieval practice, category learning, and metacognition. He's also a self-described stats geek with a nearly completed master's degree in quantitative methods and appreciation for open science and research transparency. He graduated from Dartmouth College with a cognitive science degree in 2018. Today, we'll be discussing Allison and Brendan's 2021 article in Educational Psychologist entitled, A Critical Review of the Refutation Text Literature, Methodological Confounds, Theoretical Problems, and Possible Solutions, which they co-authored with Brady Nash and Diane Shallot. Allison and Brendan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. So can you give us just a brief overview of the focus of your article? Sure. I think this started thinking about how with misinformation and fake news, the kinds of consequences that can come about. And with that focus, there's an intense interest from social scientists to find tools to fight against fake news. And in this article, we evaluate the evidence for one potential tool to fight against these ideas, and those are refutation texts, which originally started out as an intervention to undo scientific misconceptions, thinking about uh, Newton's laws or, or how the seasons work. And although our paper is described as a critical review, this does not necessarily mean that we think refutation texts are ineffectual or without merit, but rather we sought to find areas where this research could be improved and built upon. So we identified two primary elements of the refutation research that we wanted to delve into, those focusing on the methods and also the theory and ways that we could push refutation researchers to improve upon their studies to ensure that the findings are generalizable and are appropriate for the kind of implications they may have. So that's great. That's really helpful. And I, there's a term that you used in the article that I really like. You said it was a loving critique, and, and that is how I read it, right? So you, know, uh, you approach the literature from wanting to improve it, as you said. I think you know, it could be the case that many of our listeners know what a refutation text is, but there may be some that are not. So could you just give us a brief definition or explanation of what a refutation text is and kind of what it sounds like or looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So a refutation text typically is comprised of three components. There's the presentation of a misconception. For instance, you may believe that uh, two objects of the same shape and size, the heavier one will fall faster. Mm -hmm. Then it's followed by a refutation cue, but this is incorrect. And then the currently accepted scientific explanation or explicit counterclaim. 
So in fact, the objects will hit the ground at roughly the same time. So that that kind of text, I think, has gotten a lot of attention, and you know, very often in the in the classic paradigm, there's that kind of text, and then there's uh, another kind of like a comparison text. And you know, what would the comparison text sound like, given your example? Generally, so there's a traditional text control in most of these experiments that form the refutation text literature, and generally, you would just start off by kind of going straight into the currently accepted scientific consensus. So you wouldn't say anything about, you might believe that they would fall at different rates. You would just say they fall the same speed. So you would kind of say the objects are going to behave in X, Y, and Z manner, and you wouldn't at all reference maybe potential misconceptions that learners would have about those objects. Yeah, so I think that's really helpful, right? So the idea here is that by stating the misconception and explicitly refuting it and then providing more explicit, uh, as you said, kind of normative scientific information that people are more likely to engage in conceptual change. And there's been a lot of research out there on this. And I think your article is super helpful because you kind of took a critical but loving eye at that literature and identified both some methodological issues with the research and some theoretical issues or limitations that you addressed in the article. And so I thought it'd be helpful here if we just talk through a couple of those, you can kind of give us an overview. And the first thing that really caught my eye was that you saw some concerns about the number of topics that often get used in these kinds of studies and then the diversity of the topics that are used in these research studies. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Sure. So this is definitely one of the biggest critiques and maybe one of the critiques that led us into writing this paper in the first place, because I think it's one of those things that you will, if you take a close eye to the refutation text literature, you will start realizing that certain topics recur quite often in refutation text studies. So for example, I believe there's a text about Newton's laws that comes up quite often. And I mean, it makes sense. Oftentimes researchers are kind of building on their earlier work and they often will use some of the same stimuli just because that's more convenient and because they know that those stimuli work. But as we kind of argue in our paper, this does lead to a certain kind of brittleness or frailty to the findings, because if you keep finding the Newton text works, the refutation text about Newton's laws works, it doesn't necessarily give you that much information about refutation text kind of as like a class of texts in and of themselves or about Mm -hmm. how the refutation text effect applies to other topics, which is kind of one of our main concerns with this idea or kind of premise of our article that oftentimes refutation texts are starting to become kind of increasingly applied to political or more emotionally involved misconceptions than Newton's laws, which means that we don't have as much kind of information about how the refutation text effect looks in these new types of stimulants or new topics. Yeah, so that makes sense to me, right? It seems to me that in your article, you found that a number of the studies kind of only had one refutation text, comparison text topic, and that those texts and topics kind of got used a lot or reused a lot. And so um, it certainly could be the case that any effects that we find are somehow specific to that topic or that particular text, the way it was written, whatever the case may be. And so I think your point about this shift from scientific issues to more what we might call socio-scientific issues is a really important one, right? Because we don't, it may not be the case that uh, what works for scientific issues and refutation texts is the same as what works for socio-scientific issues. So what would a researcher do if I'm someone that really wants to do some refutation text research, given your findings about the number of topics that tend to be used in studies and their diversity, you know, what would you recommend that I do to try to address this concern? 
So, I mean, that's definitely an open question, I think. I don't think I have the ability to give you like super strong recommendations, like you should do X number of texts. Mm -hmm. But I would say that generally, the more text you can use in your study, the better. And I think it's important to really think about like, what do you want your study results to generalize to? So if you're really only interested in scientific misconceptions, I think it's totally fine to limit yourself to a, a couple or, you know, 10 or so scientific misconceptions. But if you are more interested in fake news or some of these more politically salient topics, I think it's important to have a sample of stimuli that really cover a broader spread of misinformation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, increasing the number of topics and then being really mindful of the kinds of topics that you're addressing and you know what kinds of responses they might elicit from people. That makes a lot of sense to me. And so I think your article does a nice job of outlining how you might do that how researchers might do that and why it's important to do so. Another limitation that you talked about was the use of pretests. And I think, you know, many people probably have this initial response of, well, aren't pretests are good, right? We should use pretests when we can, right? But you actually identified some concerns with using a pretest in a refutation text study. Can you talk to us a little bit about those concerns? So my background as a kind of cognitive psychologist studying memory actually involves looking at a lot of the impacts of testing. I'm sure you probably are familiar with the idea of retrieval practice, which is this idea that testing memory is actually a really kind of powerful tool to make information kind of stick in your head for a while. So mm-hmm. coming out of that research literature, I'm very attuned to the effects of testing on just like how anytime you test a piece of information or ask someone a question about something, that actually changes their memory for that information. So when I started reading through the refutation text literature, I started thinking about like, what do I know about ritual practice? How might that interact with the refutation text effect? And in this case, a pretest could be kind of considered a a type of like ritual practice or Mm -hmm. a pretesting effect. The one question we raise is kind of whether that might actually basically like potentiate or enhance the effects of refutation texts. By kind of drawing learners to like salient information as they read it, they're kind of thinking, oh, they asked me this question about my beliefs, and then they see that kind of comes up in the text that might actually enhance the memory for those facts. Mm. So the one question is, if you start using refutation text in the classroom without pretests, is there going to be a slightly reduced effect? It seems plausible to me, but I'm not sure if there's great empirical evidence either way right now. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question and a great point, right? Many participants come into studies and they're kind of trying to figure out what's this about? Okay, what's the trick? And if you give them a pretest, it does kind of make them perhaps hypersensitive to those topics, may cue them as to what to pay attention to. And your potential solution to this, or at least one way to investigate this question, maybe is a better way to put it, that you describe in the article is a design that I love that I think has not gotten enough attention in the field. And that's the Solomon four groups design. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to have to feel like you have to go through a long methodological explanation, but can you give us just the gist of like what that is and how that would help us investigate this pretest issue? Yeah, sure. So I had not heard of the Solomon four groups design before or much before I wrote this paper. And when I did find out about it, I was like, oh, that's a really nice solution. So mm-hmm. in essence, you're just kind of manipulating whether there's a pretest kind of before like the main experimental component. And then you're also having a condition where you don't have like the experimental component in between. And basically you end up with four groups and it allows you to tease out the effects of the pretest. And assuming there's really no kind of like potentiating effects, it kind of lets you basically estimate the interaction of the pretest with like the kind of main experimental task. Yeah. So that, that was super cool. 
And uh, it does seem like it'd be a really valuable tool to add to the methodological toolbox when investigating refutation texts and all kinds of other phenomena in educational psychology and cognitive psychology, et cetera. So I'm glad that's in the article and you have a nice description of it in there. Another methodological concern that you brought up was delayed testing and maybe a lack of use of delayed testing. What are the concerns there and why is delayed testing important to do when thinking about refutation text effects? So I think one thing to consider with delayed testing is that ultimately refutation researchers are hoping that these interventions can lead to long-term conceptual change. Mm -hmm. And in many articles in the current research that has been published, primarily the researchers are looking at short-term effects, looking at immediate post-tests. And so when we were looking through articles, we did code for papers that had a delayed post-test, which we went by a delay as being anything from one full day or more after the refutation text was read by the participant. Mm -hmm. And we found that the delay was typically about two weeks between when students read the text and when they were then tested at a delay. And there are some possible complications with that. One is that two weeks could be seen as still relatively short. There were some Mm -hmm. texts that did test a month later or longer than that. Another issue that can come about with this is that these delayed tests were in addition to an immediate post-test, which again comes back to the issue that Brendan was talking about of this repeated testing and how Mm -hmm. that might lead to different kinds of effects and complicating the potential results of the refutation text themselves. Yeah, I think that's a, a super important issue. And, you know, as you've said, there are many people that are linking refutation of texts to a desire to address, you know, fake news and misconceptions and misinformation about socio-scientific or socio-political issues. And so this question of do people's change conceptions stick, right? Do they do they adopt the normative information and then uh, actually retain it past two weeks, you know, for a month, for a year, for the rest of their life? That's a really important question. And I, I'm glad that you you brought that up. And again, I, I think, you know, one of the things I really like about your article is it really is a loving critique, right? It's it's easy to approach a area of scholarship and be hypercritical, kind of hindsight is twenty twenty. But you, you go through and you say like, okay, here's some really good research and here's some things that methodologically could take us another step forward. And so the things that we've talked about so far, I think are all really nice suggestions for the field and for people who are thinking about doing refutation text research in the future. So that's great. And then there's a a second bucket of concerns um, that are more theoretical that are also given quite lovingly. But I'm wondering if we can talk through a couple of those. And the first one that you bring up is this use of reading speed as a measure of attention or processing. What are some complexities about that? So I think one thing that comes about with this, and there are some refutation studies that have used think aloud protocols to try to identify how learners and participants are moving through refutation texts, how they are thinking about what they are reading and the kinds of internal thought processes they are having. Mm -hmm. An important element to note is that researchers themselves have had different interpretations of reading speed of refutation texts. 
with some saying that fast reading speeds could indicate that information is very coherently presented. It could indicate that learners are uptaking information because it fits with their previous conceptions. And an alternative explanation that has not been presented in the refutation text literature, but was brought up in another paper, has also been the idea of tuning out. So could students Mm. be reading faster because they're skimming Mm. over Mm -hmm. certain ideas or information? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where this idea of attention with looking at reading speed or eye tracking is one way to consider how learners are, again, learning these kinds of texts. But I think it's important for researchers really to be considerate of, number one, what elements, parts of the texts are they looking at? Mm -hmm. In the refutation text literature, a lot of them are looking only at one sentence of the text. Mm -hmm. But how are readers looking at the other sentences or the other parts of a refutation statement? And how are those interacting with their learning? And so we don't necessarily see a clear agreement across researchers about what different speeds uh, or measures of attention mean for readers. And that that does seem really complex. I mean, there's a lot of different potential explanations. And so it makes sense to me that uh, that might be an area where we need to do some more research. And it's, it's helpful. I mean, one of the things I really like about educational psychologist articles is very often they help us better understand how we're doing our work. And this is a great example. You know, we probably should be thoughtful about the ways in which we're interpreting reading speed. And as you said, there's a bunch of different things that it could mean. And we just, that's an exciting area of future research. That's great. Another thing that you talked about in the article harkens back to something we've talked about a couple of times in our discussion here. And that is, you know, does the refutation text effect work the same for something like a scientific topic that's pretty abstract and people might not have much connection with versus, you know, socio-scientific issues or socio-political issues like vaccine hesitancy or global warming, climate change, et cetera. And are those effects the same? Are they different? And one of the distinctions that you made that I thought was really important was the difference between participants being misinformed about those topics before they get to the study versus uninformed. What are those differences and why are they important? I mean, yeah, it's, that's really a huge question. I think the difference between misinformation and being uninformed. And I think just even from an operationalization perspective, when we're measuring the uh, beliefs or knowledge that learners come into an experiment with, or usually just using a multiple choice test. I mean, there are exceptions. I'm just making a generalization. But when someone answers incorrectly or answers with a misconception on a multiple choice test, we don't really know why they answered in that way. We don't know if it's just because they don't know and they're just kind of answering at random or if they truly mm-hmm. kind of deeply hold the misconception that we're, we're targeting. Mm-hmm. So from a purely methods perspective, that's an open question. But I think in the kind of the second half of our paper where we're talking about theory, we're really interested in just is it even really possible or feasible to really challenge, I guess, deep-seated misconceptions or the type of politicized, socio-political misconceptions that people hold with a single text? And how do we think about the impact of a single text within kind of like a, a misinformation environment or the larger social environment? How feasible would it be to really change people's beliefs with a, a single experimental session? And, and should we think like larger or outside of a single text if we want to truly fight back against some of the misinformation that that's having pretty tangible effects on our world right now, I think. Mm -hmm. And another element of it, 
I think ties back in thinking about the history of refutation texts. They were designed originally for young children, for scientific misconceptions, especially presented in textbooks. Mm. And so from there, being now in perhaps a more affective age of research, researchers are becoming more interested in how do topics like motivation or emotion play a role in how learners revise or update their beliefs. And so I think when it comes to misconceptions, researchers are now starting to look into these more nuanced topics that certainly could be effectively addressed with refutation texts. But I think it's this at the crux of generalizability, where we want to make sure that what began and started with scientific what some people might call unemotional, though, you know, we can have another conversation about how epistemic emotions interact with that, how those topics and the findings coming about from experiments involving them may be different from research and studies that integrate texts that investigate topics of immigration or vaccines Mm -hmm. or climate change. Yeah, that strikes me as super important, right? When I talk about conceptual change, like in classes, you know, I have a bunch of different examples. And one of them is the the myth that toilets, when they flush, they go in one direction in the northern hemisphere and a different direction in the southern hemisphere. And, you know, people laugh about it and they go like, oh, really? I had heard that. I, did, I didn't realize that wasn't true. And there's not a lot of digging in on that particular misconception, right? There are too many people that are like, darn it, I believe that and you can't convince me otherwise. Whereas, you know, if you're talking about climate change and the role of, let's say, cows and methane and meat eating in climate change. I mean, I could see how, for example, if you're talking to someone who comes from a farming background, they might have a real strong emotional reaction to that. And there may be very good reasons why they respond differently to that particular refutation text than one about toilets and flushing and that kind of thing. So I I do think your article does a really nice job of talking about how important it will be to investigate, as you said, things like motivation and emotions in the process of uh, misconceptions and conceptual change and refutation texts, because it could be that there's a lot more to the story depending upon the nature of the topic and the person themselves, right? Yeah. I mean, also one thing I'd like to add, I think part of why our article developed as a loving critique was that we had kind of done some of our own empirical work, looking at the reputation of text effect with a text that was about misconceptions about marijuana use. So we had we'd sourced some misconceptions from some medical journals about marijuana use that we thought maybe undergraduates, which were our participants in this study, that we thought they might commonly hold. And we did not find much of an effect of the refutation text at all on their misconceptions about marijuana use and the negative effects that using marijuana can potentially have. And that's kind of what led us down this path of kind of actually doing a little bit of a postmortem on our own experiment and trying to figure out where we'd gone wrong and maybe not done enough theorizing. So I, I want to emphasize almost all of the problems that we identify in this paper were really things that we probably fell into ourselves. Um, at least half of them, I would say we made some of these mistakes on our own. And one of them, I think, was this marijuana text is like kind of a socio-political issue. Uh, the drug war is a very kind of like it impacts people in very disparate manners. It's often associated with issues of structural racism. And I think after reading some of the qualitative responses in our study, we realized that, you know, maybe refutation texts aren't the right way to go about this. And maybe there's some some more theorizing we needed to do to help people think about the relative like harms and benefits of marijuana use. 
Yeah, I really like that part of your article. I thought it was informative to kind of hear about your scientific journey, right? This is how science happens. You you try something and then you do it and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it kind of partially works and you've got to investigate why. And you talk nicely about how qualitative research was really instrumental to better understanding what was going on in your study. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like what kind of role can qualitative research play in better understanding the issues we've been talking about? I think for us, we found that qualitative research helped us to figure out who the learners are who were reading our text, the kinds of background and prior knowledge that they brought with them to the experience. Mm -hmm. So we modeled our refutation text off of an article from a medical journal, and it was very much focused on health effects was, you know, in some ways emotionally removed from and did not address social or political or other issues associated with marijuana. And so what I think was very helpful for us was to see how learners in their qualitative responses brought all these parts of themselves, their experiences, their stories Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. into their decision to engage with the refutation text. So there were some students who said, I was not looking to change my mind today. Hmm. And so Mm -hmm. they did not. And so that provided us with some evidence of thinking that it also could be the mindset the students are in when they come and read a refutation text. Maybe they need to be open and willing to change their beliefs. Or others who, again, were bringing in their personal experiences and their own learnings about, as Brendan mentioned, uh, systemic racism and, and injustices that led them to have very strong beliefs about marijuana usage that since they were not mentioned in the refutation text, not brought about or discussed, they felt that they could not learn from this text or would hmm. not integrate this kind of knowledge into their understanding because they weighed these other elements so heavily. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to consider in this qualitative research, who are the students that are being involved? And I think that if we had used these responses as a foundation for writing our refutation text, perhaps it would have been that much more impactful Mm -hmm. and could have led to a more responsible revision. Yeah, I I really like that. So there's a wonderful explanatory purpose of what you were doing. And it just, it it sounds so rich. It just sounds like there's so many cool things that you've identified that could then fuel future research. And so I really enjoyed in your article, how you described the qualitative follow-up and how it really fueled this article and, and maybe some other work. So there's plenty more in your article about methodological concerns or limitations and theoretical concerns or limitations. And then, you know, towards the end of the article, you talked about learners as stakeholders. I really like that idea. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. So I think this really pairs well nicely with kind of what Allison was mentioning earlier, where once we started using qualitative methods to really understand some of the reactions that our our students or learners had to the text we'd written, we realized we kind of... And I think uh, Hind, in in a review article published in 2001, kind of has similar thoughts about the reputation text paradigm. So I don't want to say this is entirely novel, but there is a certain kind of perception when you're reading a reputation text that this knowledge is coming down from on high and like that you as a learner have very little autonomy or 
kind of voice in the refutation text because it's kind of saying like you may think this but you're wrong and 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 <laughs> that can be you know depending on how exactly it's phrased it might be more or less kind of flippant or provocative but one thing we were kind of starting to think about as we were writing our conclusion was like maybe we needed to rethink some of this like epistemic hierarchy and how could we engage people with misconceptions when we're writing or evaluating texts and maybe bring them into the fold a little bit more. And I think that would both maybe create a, a less hierarchical refutation text and potentially a more effective method of kind of undoing misconceptions or at least understanding why people hold them. Is, what do you think, Allison? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think the Hein 2001 paper is a beautiful representation of a feminist critique about refutation texts and mm -hmm, thinking mm -hmm of how this kind of structure does impose a hierarchy of valuing some knowledge over others and also assumes a single legitimate reality. And as refutation texts move into areas that may have a little bit of more blurred lines, it is important to consider who are the stakeholders and involving them. And so I think that it could be advantageous for researchers to certainly involve students and others in the process, but could we also think about refutations as extending to a refutation process itself, where an elicitation and revision of misconceptions is performed through a dialogue between teacher and students? Yeah, I really like that. I think you're right. It's, it's certainly possible to frame a refutation in kind of an off-putting or even kind of offensive way. Um, whereas I think if you view it from a more feminist critique as a, as a more collaborative process, a process of trying to understand um, and really engage in dialogue that I could imagine how there might be some really successful interventions. And what's coming to mind to me immediately is like public health. There's a lot of public health interventions that involved kind of sitting down with people and saying, okay, you're, you're not interested in this particular treatment. Can just, I'm in, interested in why, can you help me understand that? And let's, let's talk about it rather than saying you need this treatment, you got to get it. So I like that perspective and I'm glad that you brought it um, to the article. It really is just a, it's a great article. It's a, again, a very loving critique. It's a way to advance the field forward, which is how science happens. So kudos on a great article. Let me shift gears just a little bit. I'm just interested, curious, what kinds of things are you working on now that you're excited about? That's kind of, you know, getting you excited to go into the research lab in the morning. Well, in terms of building off of this article, um, we did present the qualitative findings from our study at AERA, uh, which was a really wonderful conversation to have with other researchers. And at the Literacy Research Association conference uh, this year, we will also be presenting a theoretical piece that builds on what we just talked about, thinking about how refutation texts uh, might conflict with critical literacy and, and culturally responsive pedagogies. Outside of that, I have wrapped up my dissertation um, and I'm looking forward to this year verifying my proposed process model of students' experiences of confusion. Oh, awesome. Congratulations on the dissertation. That sounds great. Thank you. Brendan, what about you? So I'm not currently working too much in the refutation text area. I just passed my qualifying exam, so I'm starting to get into the process of dissertating, but I haven't yet proposed. But I'm currently working on some research that I'm really, really fascinated by, which looks at kind of the tension between depth and uh, breadth when 
when students are studying. So how do they deal with, with like an overwhelming amount of information? For example, when mm. studying for the bar exam, how do students kind of narrow in on what's important and how can we enable them in identifying the important material that they should really kind of spend the most time on while maybe not spending so much time studying unimportant information. So mm. that's kind of the general topic that I think my dissertation will explore. Mm. And uh, I'm using some kind of more cognitive psychological lab experiments, some simulations and hopefully some surveys to kind of get at that idea. Sounds great. I think there's a, a nation of law students that would be excited for you to help them uh, focus in and maybe spend a little less time. So that's great. Well, you know, I want to thank you both so much for talking to me today about your article. I really encourage our listeners to check it out. Again, it's in the 2021 volume of Educational Psychologists. It's entitled A Critical Review of the Refutation Text Literature, Methodological Confounds, Theoretical Problems, and Possible Solutions. So Brendan and Allison, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.